Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of I Like to Read with me, your host, Rachel Polanski. If you are just finding me from the for, for the for, we've already messed up the words. If you are just finding me for the first time, hello, my name is Rachel. I read about five to seven books a week. I know, pretty crazy. A few caveats with that. Usually the books are within the 200 to 300 page mark, sometimes even more prosaic than like true, um, you know, more stodgy text, I should say. So they're sometimes like a little more palatable. Um, But either way, I do read really fast. I do spend a lot of my free time reading. Um, This is just my little corner of the podcasting internet, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you have found me. Speaking of which, if you have just found me for the first time again, or if you're an old fan, but you're just like saying, hey, make sure you follow me on all of those platforms, leave me reviews, like my videos, slash, you know, rate me on Apple Podcasts, all of that really, really helps. Um, And this time I actually wrote a couple of talking points that I want to get into before my five books of the week. Um, Old pro fans will know that I do not script this. The only planning I do is, of course, read the books ahead of time and then compile my favorite five of the week not all the books that I read every week make it in, simply because one, I don't have time to digest all of that for you and you wouldn't care. And then what's the point of being a curator if I'm telling you everything? I mean, I guess, you know, I've done some episodes or done some little tidbits of like disappointing books or books that I don't think are worth it, but I don't really like want to, you know, authors work so hard on books. And even if it's not to my liking, I mean, they put so much of their heart and soul into it that like, I just want to keep this a more positive space, not to say that we don't talk about negativity because hello, have you met me? But some talking points. Um, I know I've mentioned in the past that I also have a blog named Media Maven. Um, I used to post pretty frequently on that pretty much every week. With It started out as like my weekly recommendations of like, here's what I've been watching and here's what I've been reading and here's what I've been listening to. So it started as sort of like a curation of all my pop culture favorites. Um, and then as quarantine went on and like less stuff was being put out and I was sort of just like in a different headspace, I sort of pivoted to like every other week slash when I felt like publishing then whittled it down to every month. Then it got to the point where I was like, you know, not that I spend too much time really um, recording. I like to read. And of course, the main bulk of the time goes into the actual reading. And like I said, I don't script anything. I could definitely be better about like writing down some initial thoughts. But I think part of the fun of the podcast is the spontaneity and you never know what you're going to get. And like my ADD mind, sometimes if I'm just like distracted by one thing, I'm like totally off track, even though I'd like to think I'm a good multitasker. Sometimes when it comes to like the actual speaking and talking, that part of multitasking is hard. That all being said, the blog, I started at a point where I was feeling super creatively unfulfilled. I think everyone comes to a point where the blogs when they start them are like so important. I know I've had like a couple different iterations of blogs, like namely I was a beauty blogger in a past life. Crazy, I know, but I'll make up just for you guys though. Um, and again, it's like, what was I saying? Um, that all being said, it just wasn't serving the same purpose creatively anymore. I do like to focus more on, I like to read, not to say that I don't like to write, not to say that I don't still like to watch things. I still like to recommend things. So I think, you know, I've talked about on the podcast before, even though this is I like to read and we primarily focus on books. I also want to like share, I think what's part of the beauty of books is they fit into the realm of pop culture just as equally, at least in my heart, as movies and TV shows, but they just don't get the same media attention unless you're super tuned into the literary community, which this podcast has allowed me to further explore that, which I'm super grateful for. 
So I think I'll just spend some time, you know, I'm still watching a lot of things. I'm still recommending them to my friends and posting them on my Instagram and tweeting about how much I like them. But the things that really stand out to me or that I briefly want to mention, um, we're going to have a little like, I like to watch corner. And so that um, for those who have read the blog, which was just also like not the biggest audience, I think, you know, not that I'm getting thousands of fans here either, but I think that this is more where my heart lies for now. And it's hard enough to get creatively inspired to record and do these sometimes. So like, also just the mental energy that went into the blogs. It's like, why put them out if like no one's really reading them? And it's like, what am I putting them out for? I still have a couple of years though, some really great recommendations. So if you're stuck of like, you know, you need something to watch or listen to you or, you know, some sort of pop culture recommendation movie TV show, check out the blog because I'll still link to it. And it's not to say that it's a uh, goodbye forever, but it's, it is a slight, you know, goodbye for now pause <gasps> on the blog. Um, so I like to watch. I've been watching a lot of stuff, of course. The three things that really stick out to me. First is the Netflix limited series Clickbait. So normally I'm a planner. I like to know when shows are coming out. I write down the shows that interest me ahead of time. So I sort of like have them on my radar. And I don't always like write down the date, but I'm like, okay, I know. Excuse me, for example, like, okay, tomorrow is September 2nd. This is definitely being released a couple of weeks after that. There's a new movie coming out called Superhost on Shutter. So, like, I have that on my radar. Clickbait is one that somehow just totally slipped through the cracks. I know that I probably read about it at some point and it just didn't register. And then, of course, my phone gave me a notification, which normally I ignore from Netflix, but I don't know what it was just a week ago that, like, had me feeling curious. So... I was like, what is clickbait? And then I saw that it was starring Zoe Kazan, who's like a fantastic indie darling actor. Um, it was also starring like Adrian, whatever, his greener, the guy from Entourage and the Delaware's Prada. And it's the story of a man who was kidnapped, put on the internet in a viral video that says, if this view, if this video reaches 5 million views, I will die. And that's a pretty crazy like Black Mirror-esque premises. Um, and then it becomes much more about, you know, the surrounding lies and the webs and the tales that we tell. And each episode is told from the perspective of a different person involved in the case while still intertwining with the other people, which I thought was really cool. It was like my favorite thing about short stories that, you know, have maybe one overarching plot. I mean, maybe this was definitely, you know, it, if it had been written first, I could see it as more of a novel. I believe this is just a purely fictional story. That all being said, if you're into thrillers, if you're into more crime, uh, sociological commentary stuff, I mean, it's, I keep wanting to call it like a true crime series because it feels like something that's inspired from real life, but like to my knowledge, it's fictional, but you know, at this day and age, definitely feels like something that could kind of happen in real life. Um, pivoting, uh, the way I had it written down is different. So staying actually, you know, we're going to stay in that sort of like darker, um, meaty category. I, the latest season of the show Slasher, which is like totally... I think under pretty much everyone's radar, it's now, the first three seasons are on Netflix. The season that I'm watching and currently talking about is season four, only available on Shudder. This is not Shudder, sponsored by Shudder, say that five times fast. Um, but I did indulge in a subscription adding to my Amazon Prime because this show is, this season is fantastic, honestly. It's like succession meets a horror movie. So it's all about like the rich, the commentary of the rich, privileged white people, um, a gaggle of you know misfit toys pretty much the family of conrad god i can't even remember his last name that's how in tuned i am but the the heirs of the famous patriarch who passes away all have to compete for his fortune um and not just compete you know and the losers are out but they they die and so it's like the members of the family are being picked off one by one the gore is top notch um the camp is on like the tone is just like a little bit hard to to pin down because I wish there was like a little more campy because even though it's you know horror and death the sort of the succession-esque commentary makes it feel 
a little bit more um, campy and more lighter and comedic despite the horror and death. Um, and that's definitely not the tone of some of the other seasons or episodes. But definitely check out all the se- – they're all also anthology series, so you don't have to have watched one to see the other. So like I said, I think the first three seasons are on Netflix. Um, but if you're into horror and you want to indulge in a Shutter subscription, definitely check out season four of Slasher. I believe it's called Flesh and Blood. And completely pivoting off of that, the L word Generation Q. Um, I just don't know how they make, like, such a good drama love show. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's It's really rare for an ensemble comedy, I should say. It's, I think I watched the original L word a few years, not a few years, in college. So definitely, like, a little bit after it came out. And I enjoyed <laughs> came out and enjoyed it immensely and just really connected with a lot of the characters and struggles that they're going through. And I think it's super dimensional on whether or not you identify as somebody who is, you know, lesbian or gay or bi or transgender or, you know, is pansexual, whatever, you know, love whoever you want, be whoever you want to be. That's my motto. Um, but the way that they bring Generation Q, so I think it's like technically 10 years later than the last season ended and they're bringing back all our fan favorites, but they're also bringing in new characters. And the way that they are able to like take this new cast, because it's not so much a revival, like it's very clearly like we're bringing up old characters and old past and old situations from the previous season. And they're definitely acknowledging that that happened, but it's also like we're clearly moving on and we are 10 years later and the way that these characters still have such these deep bonds and friendships. So like, yes, I definitely recommend having watched the first, you know, the original L word just to get like the the feel and get the vibe of the LA group. But then Generation Q, I will say for like a quasi revival, you know, revamp of an already lo- beloved show and to add such nuance and gravitas to an already nuanced and gravitas show and keep the ensemble comedy and individual or, you know, comedy ensemble dramedy drama elements alive while keeping all the characters fresh, like very hard to do. But so far, we're, I'm on, you know, the se- second season is out and I'm just reminded every week when an episode drops, like how much I really like this show. And that's I like to watch, but you're not really here to talk about what I like to watch, but maybe you are. And if so, cool. And if you want to hear about the books now, here you go. The the five books I read in the past week-ish that I truly adored and want to talk about. The first one is Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Rock and Ro- Rock Explosion by Tom Bourgeois. I believe, hope I'm saying that right. It's French. And Richard Bienstock. Um, this is, as the title states, The Uncensored History of the 80s Rock Explosion. It is an oral history of the 1980s hair metal movement, specifically in Los Angeles, not specifically in Los Angeles. I don't know why I just said that. Primarily in Los Angeles, but also the East Coast. And it was so good. Like, I learned so much. I definitely would consider myself a pretty, you know, intermediate fan of hair metal. Like, I know most of the classic song, pretty much all the classic songs, of course, a few more of the deep cuts, but not, you know, I can only name the two Twisted Sisters songs, of course, Quiet Riot Song, Come On, Feel the Noise. That is the only one I knew. I love Poison. I love Nothing But a Good Time. Um, But I love it from Rock of Love, not because I was alive during that time. And so to see all this nostalgia and, you know, a lot of the area on the Sunset Strip still exists and is only like 25 minutes from my apartment. So I really got to go and visit it because there's so much rich history. Um, There's so the evolution of the music genre is told from everybody not everybody involved, that would be impossible, but so many different people involved from so many different aspects. So if you're into oral histories, if you're into, um, there was a lot packed into this. It definitely, you know, I want to, I read it in a day, but I really spent like that whole day immersed in reading in it for like seven hours. Um, they do a really comprehensive look, um, not only at the individual people involved, but the larger implications of the hair metal movement, what came before, how the hair metal movement came to be and was so important, not only in Los Angeles, 
but also on the East Coast, but how Los Angeles really stood as that epicenter. And then also the the fall of hair metal, too, because it was really just a 1980s thing. And then pretty much, you know, they say that Nirvana, never mind, killed hair metal. And while that may be a slight exaggeration, I think a lot of this book um, proves that to be true and just proves to show like how hair metal was such a special genre and is, you know, on the one hand, it is what it is. It's men wearing tight clothing and wearing makeup and being doing whatever but there's also like a lot more than that and it's so much more than like the silly cheesy stuff um that you know it it is that but it's also so much more it's more than the sum of its parts i believe is the saying so that's that one Next, we have Summer Fun by Jean Thornton. This is another, like, musical-ish book. Um, feels like it is a true story, but is completely fictional, but is deals with a young trans woman named Gala, and she exists in, like, the late 2000s, and she works at a bat- Colorado Springs, like, bathhouse, pretty much. And the half of the story is told from her perspective and her sort of, like, figuring herself out. The other half of the story is told through her writing letters to this mysterious figure named B. Um, We learn very quickly that B is a prominent figure in the rock and roll scene in the 1960s. So part of it is, like I said, Gala developing herself and figuring out what it means to be trans and exist in this world where, you know, while things even now might seem great and, you know, we still have a long way to go. Even 10 years ago, there was looked a lot different than it did now. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like. And I think, you know, Gene Thornton does. That's why we have Gene Thornton to talk about, you know, not only trans identity, but longing for something that isn't yours, which could be applied to the trans identity, but also to the to the wanting of creativity and music because the character B is a fictional rock and roll character, but the way that the sort of the scene comes alive and imagined by Gene Thornton, like at times I had to remind myself that like, no, this is fictional, but definitely had sort of that, you know, like Daisy Jones and the six like oral history type vibes, but told through the letters of a young woman figuring out her identity in, you know, the book's present day. So despite the title saying summer fun, you know, this book was there's nothing super deep and dark, but there is a lot of, you know, peeling away the layers of the superficial self to get to the raw inside and the pain and discomfort that comes along with that for two people just trying to figure themselves out. Um, so next, water break, sorry. We have Horse Girls. Recovering, aspiring, and devoted writers redefine the iconic bond. So this is edited by Halima Marcus, who wrote the introduction, but I believe that there are... 10, maybe a few more, um, 10 to 15 different essays by authors like Carmen Maria Machado, T. T Kira Madden, Maggie Shepard. So a lot of authors that I've actually talked about on the podcast before. Um, I personally am not a horse girl, nor do I have any real past with horses. I think I was lucky enough to go horseback riding on vacation a couple of times. And I do remember those being like super special, really magical moments because not only are you in nature, but horses really are these wonderful, magical, majestic beasts that definitely don't get enough credit, specifically the women who devote themselves to riding them. So what this book does is explores the idea, again, as the title states, of what it means to be a horse girl, but also what it means, you know, to grow up in this very specific subculture that was such an ingrained part of your identity. Because to be a horse girl is more than just, you know, an hour to a week of soccer practice. It's, you know, developing a bond with this living creature that has served a purpose for humans for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Have horses been around that long? Probably. Um, And so for each writer to take their own identity and their own style and their own experiences, some 
you know, the idea of horseback riding represented for them a past trauma. So they had to, you know, come to terms in the present day with what it means to reconnect with that self. For some, it's part of their identity that has remained part of their identity, but they still have to grapple with the sort of societal um, expectations of like what it means to still be a horse girl or a horse woman. Um, I think there's a lot of complexity and really well-written essays that may have previously been featured in other places, but to really come together as a compilation of this entire world that, like I said, devoted so many young women's lives for years like, to own a horse and to do horseback riding lessons back on that thing. And, you know, it takes hours and hours a week and it takes a real dedication and commitment and what it means, you know, to be a horse girl and all that. It also, it's told in, in, you know, essays. So this is a great book where if you're intimidated by a novel, if you're, you know, even short stories, you're like, eh, but you're like, okay, I could delve into some cool nonfiction expository personal writing. And each of the essays are relatively short. The entire book itself, I think, is under 300 pages. So definitely a good one where you can even just pick it up and read an essay or part of an essay a night, and then you'll get through it in a couple of weeks and you'll be like, hey, I read a book. <laughs> and next we have Other People's Children by R.J. Hoffman. I personally do not have children, nor do I have any interest in having them in the in the near future, in the far distant future, yes, but I'm still 27 and the idea of even like having children in two or three years terrifies me. Um, so I can't, like I said, there's a lot of things that is wonderful about literature because it takes these ideas and these concepts and these struggles that people deal with and puts them to the page so that someone, you know, who may not necessarily be going through the same thing can still, you know, not empathize because they haven't been through the same thing, but can sympathize and at least, you know, bring other people's plights and emotions and in a nuanced way that you wouldn't normally get from just, you know, reading a BuzzFeed article or whatever. So this novel deals with the idea of infertility. It deals with a couple named Gail and John Durbin who have been trying really hard to have a child and then they want to go through adoption and even having an adopting a child is really difficult but their lucky day comes when they are matched with a young teenage girl named Carly who got pregnant accidentally um does want to have her child struggles with whether or not to give him up but pretty much is determined not to, you know she doesn't want to ruin her life any more than she has so she agrees to give her baby to this family however one small instance in the hospital room during the delivery changes the course of their lives forever um Carly Carly quickly changes her mind, <laughs> and that is completely allowed in these adoption situations. Again, I can't even imagine, you know, you've been through so much. Finally, you have a child, but you still have this sort of walking on eggshells. Is this child mine? Is this not mine? Because in many instances, um, the birth mother does have a period of time to take back their child. And so what happens when you have to make the right decision for a child versus the right decision for yourself? What happens when you've wanted something for so long and finally have it, but it may not be the right or the best thing? Um, and there's definitely also like a little bit of a thriller element to it, and I won't spoil it necessarily with where it goes. Um, I won't say anything more. Like I said, I won't say anything more on that end. But the thriller element is definitely, you know, it's almost like embedded in the way that these people's emotions are just so raw and heightened because this is such a fragile, delicate time. It's a new life and it's a new birth and it's a scary and exciting time for any new parents. And then when you're adding in the element of adoptive parents versus, a, you know, the biological parent who had relinquished all her rights, but, you know, kind of changes her mind. So all of these characters are really well developed. And while their intentions may not necessarily be ones that you agree with, they are certainly justified in the characters' minds and brought to life with an idea of certainty that really just makes this book like, you know, I, I, I really fell for all the characters and sympathized with them. 
And last, but certainly certainly not least, we have Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. We're going to take a, a walk across the pond. Um, this is definitely more of like a lighter domestic novel. And I say domestic and in the sense that our main character, Nina, we are just sort of dealing with one year in her life and the, the everyday that sort of happens that you know, Dolly has a really great perception, I think, of what it means to live a life and sort of, you know, while we are focusing on the large moments and the big things that happen, it's really, again, the in-between moments and the things that we don't realize until too late, hindsight is twenty twenty, um, that make up a life. So Nina is a young 30-something, early 30s woman living in London, and she, you know, on the one hand has her career together, she has just bought a nice little flat, and she's just trying to make her life as enriched as possible. And she's been trying to date and just she recently broke, not recently, but a few years ago, broke up with the person that she thought she was going to marry. And so on the one hand, she's like doomed, you know, sort of accepted this doomed perpetual singlehood. On the other hand, she's tried online dating and lo and behold, she has a great date on the first night and things actually work out really well um, until he ghosts her. And the ramification of the ghosting sort of reverberates through her entire life. I've been ghosted before. Sometimes it just takes you a week to get over. And sometimes even if you haven't spent that long with the person, but you really have a deep connection. And it's also, it's not the sort of, you know, again, I don't want to give away too many spoilers and little plot tidbits because that's for you to find out on your journey through Nina's life. But it's like, you know, whether or not you've been ghosted from a first or second date, you know, that's shitty. But when you've really spent like weeks and time and really invested with someone and they ghost you, I mean, of course, you know, I've also had, you know, little flings and uh, you know, thing, you know, six weeks sort of not relationships, but you know, I was dating somebody and it ended for one reason or another, but at least that happened in person and they gave me an explanation a lot of the time to have been ghosted like that. Sucks. But also other things are happening in her life. Her dad is sick. Um, she has this really great friend, Lola, sort of touted as like the perpetual single one as well, but like lives it very differently. So it's just a really fun cast of characters dealing with like some, you know, maybe not so fun stuff, but things that a lot of people can relate to whether or not you're single. You know, we've all been through the dating woes. We've all had issues with our parents and had to deal with the idea of aging and dealing with the fact that our parents are humans. And, you know, sometimes we have to be the ones to take care of them at what, you know, whether you realize that at this point in your life or later, you know, there's a lot going on in Ghosts, but it's uh, it's funny and tender, as Goodreads said, and it's filled with whip-smart observations about relationships, family, memory, and living in the now and the present. So I will leave you with that. As always, let me know what you are reading. Let me know if you're going to check out any of these books. Let me know what I should be reading. And until next time, how many times can I say reading? Stay reading. Bye. Bye.